McKinsey & Company Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice. I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we have Andy West joining us. Andy is a senior partner in our Boston office and is global leader of the transactions practice. We sat down with Andy to discuss recent trends in conglomerates and divestitures in light of several recent high-profile divestitures. Andy, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. First, we'd just like to start off with, you know, what's driven the existence of conglomerates historically and how have some of those dynamics changed over time? Yeah, most conglomerates have actually been around for quite a while. Right? When you think of traditional conglomerates, they tend to be companies that have been around for 20, 30, 50, sometimes 100 years. And they've evolved you know, for a variety of reasons. A lot of times these companies came, you know, were born out of either economies of scale. They were simply able to produce more efficiently. Obviously, you go all the way back to... Uh, auto manufacturing and large industrials and the ability to just to put large factories in the ground and and make things more efficiently. You see also, you know, regulation playing a role. There are certain uh, economies, especially economies that are growing, where it's hard to get in if you're going to get into a market uh, and manufacture something. It's hard to get in as an outsider. So typically, if you've got a manufacturing base, you've got relationships, you've got institutional relationships uh, in the market, it's just a lot easier to expand than it is for a new player to get in. All right. There are other reasons, I think, that conglomerates exist and have existed over time. Capital efficiency is probably mm-hmm. another. Yep. So the ability to invest, take proceeds, invest over long periods of time, invest in new businesses. Certainly a lot of innovation has come out of conglomerates. New industries have been created often by their ability to take capital from one part of a business and invest in something sure. new. And then you've got economies of scope. And this is probably a more modern phenomenon and an interesting one. But this is, you know, are there inherent capabilities that a company might have? I just talked about the ability to shift capital, but also shift R&D, shift technology. There are other ones that have many businesses, but also have invested in R&D, real R&D capabilities, like true R&D capabilities. You could argue that some of the more modern conglomerates, if you'd call them that, you know, they also have invested a lot in talent and capabilities, digital capabilities. So you can take a basic capability and apply it to multiple, you know, many different businesses or use the capability to grow. So when you talk about the existence and, and why conglomerates have developed, what trends have changed? You mentioned capital, for example. If, if you look at what's happening in the modern economy, a lot of the rationale for con- conglomerates actually existing, some of that rationale is going away. So if you take them you know, piece by piece, if you think about capital efficiency, I mean, obviously, you'd argue that markets are pretty capital efficient. There's a lot right. of capital out there these right. days. Right. Uh, it's relatively affordable. Right. Um, I, I do think that longevity of capital and whether the market has the patience that maybe a private investor would is is an interesting reason and a reason why some conglomerate type activity may exist but capital you know markets have become much much more efficient over time i think economies of scale is actually a very interesting one too i think there's really interesting things happening from a scale point of view obviously you've got a rise in technology which is allowing you to outsource communicate uh, more effectively uh, shift content and knowledge across borders without actually having to shift people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's decreased the need to have everything in house or in one large, you know, office building somewhere. I think economies of scale also you, you just see scale. Companies are getting bigger. You see industries consolidating. Many companies are at scale or at minimum right. efficient scale for a lot of these activities. So I, I don't think that's as salient as it used to be. Obviously regulation is a very interesting one. You see markets a general opening of markets over the last fifty years in a pretty aggressive way, particularly the last twenty, twenty five 
you, you might see some of that coming back. You know, you see more company, you know, more markets, more countries being a little bit more isolated uh, in their mindset, but it hasn't really manifested itself in, in trade arrangements or things like that yet. Yeah. So I think that that's probably changed quite a bit. And then, you know, we get to the economies of scope, but that's TBD. I mean, to me, I think about that in a way, almost like capital, where you have to have a, a very, very clear capability that is applied across businesses to warrant that. And all of that is actually led investors, whether it's boards, activist investors, or just management, Think to take a much harder look at their portfolio. These times are changing, and frankly, it's hard for companies to actually shed assets to do this. So maybe companies are finding themselves behind the curve on a few of these trends. Talk a little bit more about some of the challenges of shedding those assets, and have some of the factors that have been holding that back, have those changed as well? Has it become easier? I, I think it's become more necessary. Okay. Um, and sometimes necessity you know, leads to decision-making, right? Sure, Acceleration sure. of some of these things. And so there is something real that's happening in the market, particularly in the U.S., but it's now happening in Asia and Europe uh, where activists are just taking a hard look at your portfolio. And if yep. you're sitting with assets that, that don't look like they make, make sense or are mathematically trading at some sort of discount, mm-hmm. um, clearly it's very – that's observable, mm-hmm. uh, and it raises a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the – so that, that greases the kids a bit. But the reason why it's hard is it's just – Getting rid of a business, how do you know it's the right time, right? right? right. It's hard to time the market. It's hard to understand value, and right. it affects people, and managers understand that. You know, Leaders don't want to disrupt their organization. Um, they don't want to destabilize their strategy. Sometimes sure. it actually causes a lot of th- calls a lot of things into question. They may not know what to do with that money. They may want to pay it back to shareholders, right. or they may right. not have a plan for the money. So there are a lot of reasons why companies would be very cautious, I think, about um, making the decision to actually mm-hmm. break up a company or to sell an asset. Um, and just not to mention the fact that there are very few strategy processes or very few companies that actually look at their portfolio in terms of getting rid of assets in the same way that they look at, for example, getting. acquiring assets. Exactly. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You don't have a systematic plan to shrink the business. You don't have a systematic plan right. to break things up. Most companies don't. Some companies do, but right. most of them don't. So it's just not ingrained, frankly, in decision-making strategy processes, budgeting, et cetera. Sure. Um, but it's becoming more necessary, as you said. Um, are there any sort of factors that are making it easier, such as um, if you spin off a business, it's still possible to have arm's length relationships between those two businesses after they've spun off? Has, has there any, anything in terms of technology that's made it a little bit easier if you're trying to spin off a business or divest of it in both the near term and, and the longer term? Yes and no. I think it's a very industry-specific question. Okay. Um, you know, with certain businesses, you know, there may be a need to collaborate. For example, yep. a company that's vertically integrated, that could be very easy to continue to collaborate. I don't need the assets on the books for the sales component of the channel. Right. I don't need the bottling component of my business. I don't mm-hmm. need, you know, all of the auto parts making. You know, you could argue that in more vertically integrated uh, businesses – there's a, a lot of commercial incentive to spin that out and then continue to collaborate. Sure. Sometimes you're creating a natural competitor, right? Or right. sometimes you're just getting out of a business. If you yep. look at pharma companies that are getting out of either therapeutic areas or a different area like animal health, I mean, there's just no need to, to really yeah. work together. So once you get rid of those, you know, the TSAs, uh, the arrangements that you might have as part of the spin for cooperating, once those are done, there's really no need to collaborate. But certainly you could argue that technology, transparency, some of the, the uh, trends I described earlier around, uh, you know, the ability to outsource and 
you know, get rid of certain corporate functions and not have to own those anymore is making the separation process a bit easier. And certainly if you need to collaborate after, uh, you know, that I, you could argue that that's, that's gotten easier as well. Are there any companies that have gotten really good at both M&A and divesting? Mm-hmm. What have they put in place yeah. to get good at it? Yeah. That's actually a really, really good question. Um, when we look at M&A performance over long periods for large companies, typically the best strategy, if you if you control for a lot of things like industry context, but mm-hmm. typically the best strategy is to be a relatively active acquirer and a semi-active divester, right? We call active portfolio trading. And I think companies who have a very clear link between their strategy and what makes them successful, you know, their, their sources of competitive advantage, right. Uh, and they're constantly moving their portfolio to reinforce that, both in terms of their own capabilities, but then also be in the markets that matter. Yep. Uh, you see those companies, on average, being quite successful. And you know, we talk a lot about modern economy and technology, and I do think you see a pace of decision-making, a pace of collaboration um, that's ever-quickening, right? And so your ability to organically be in the right place with the right technology, the right offer at the right time with the right customers – it's just getting harder and harder without actually being in the market and having to either acquire some of those capabilities. And then when you, frankly, are no longer the advantaged owner of a particular business, you're shedding that, like getting the managerial focus on what matters, right? So, you know, I do think that um, overall, uh, companies who have the capabilities to do this active trading are going to be better off. Got it. Now, Specifically, what does that mean? Right. Uh, and I think that means uh, I think a few things. One I mentioned, which is having this very, very clear link between who you are and the markets that matter sure. and how you actually al- allocate your resources and stay in the business. You have to have an active management dialogue that's clear and consistent. So I think one thing that, that people do that are quite successful is they make this very clear link between their general strategy mm-hmm. and then their transaction strategy, okay. both on the buy side and what they're acquiring and then what they might be divesting. I think... There are a few other things that are really important. If you have that active process, if you have that precision, you are able to generate, I think, much more proactive deal flow. I think being reactive to the markets is probably not a great way, typically, to add value. What you're presuming then is someone else is going to understand your strategy well enough to come to you with the right opportunity. And a lot of companies still do that. So from precision begets, you know, kind of proactive outreach and being able to build relationships, including commercial relationships with companies that may be the natural owner of one of your assets or, you know, a, a company that you eventually want to acquire. So how are you using joint ventures, alliances, commercial relationships to kind of further uh, relationship building and the migration of assets over medium to long periods of time? Sure. I think the hardest thing, frankly, uh, that companies are the hardest thing to do and what companies struggle the most with is just the governance around this process. So we talked about it earlier in terms of, you know, what does it take to sell an asset or even buy an asset? The idea that you have to have alignment at the top, including with the board, uh, around what businesses you want to be in and why. That's actually usually when you go and you ask five board members and five management committee members what they think, you know, the natural source of advantages for a company and where they need to go, you'll at least get two or three different answers, right. even a very well-aligned management team. Right. So if you're going to really migrate capital, that has to be aligned, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have to turn that into some actual deals. Mm-hmm. So whether it's something you're going to acquire or a boundary condition around some assets that you want to sell. And that actually also requires real work and can be quite complicated. You then have to turn that into a fair market price. Right. You then have to turn that into an entire plan, whether on the separation side, you know, dealing with all of the separation activity, obviously on the acquisition side, turning that into integration. 
And that whole process has to be pretty well aligned, right? Managing the strategy to the concept, to the deal, to the actual value is a lot of work. And the governance around it is typically very poorly articulated. It bounces between the board, managers of different business units, executive management, corporate development, strategy, and obviously all the back office and, and corporate functions and operating functions that need to enable it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it, is, it is not easy. I mean, it's a real capability. Right. The good news is, is that if you can figure this out, if you can crack the code, it can actually be a source of competitive advantage. Sure. Um, it's hard for others to emulate, you know, positive deal flow. It's hard to emulate a mindset around shedding assets and doing that efficiently. So companies that can crack the code can, I, I think, actually be quite successful. And so is it typically happening at the CEO level or who is it that you're seeing is typically driving the portfolio rebalancing? Where have you seen it work mm. really well? At the end of the day, the corporate portfolio is the CEO's job. And it is one of the areas of, of activity that requires significant CEO involvement because the board's involved, right. ultimately, because your right. most important shareholders are involved, because right. the constituents, your business units or whoever else is, you know, that reports up to you, they're all going to be involved, but somebody's got to decide. Right. And that usually clears with the CEO. I mean, many times it's a very close relationship between the CEO, the CFO, the head of corp dev and strategy, because mm -hmm. usually the work of the work is being done in the corporate development strategy right. function. Usually the CFO is acutely aware of what's going on with investors, investor relations with capital position looks mm -hmm. like what's happening in the markets. Mm -hmm. And obviously the CEO needs to have you know, his or her eyes on the strategy. So a collaboration between that, that team is usually extremely important. But most of this, if you're going to get over all of the hurdles I mentioned earlier, it's, it's got to be something where the CEO really has conviction and makes it his or her agenda item. And so is this, is this notion of balancing the portfolio something that a CEO would spend 20% of their time thinking about? Like if you just sort of thought yeah. of broad brushstrokes, you know, you're a CEO, how should you be thinking about, you know, where you're investing that, that mindshare? For a CEO, if it's not part of your agenda, I think the right question is to ask why not. Mm -hmm. And if it's all the reasons I said before, because it's hard, because there's a lot of uncertainty, because, you know, you're afraid you're going to attract attention from the market, you know, ask again, right? Because that's not a healthy place to be. If, right. if it's not because what you're doing, your organization's firing on all cylinders, you understand what your strategy is, and it's just a matter of simple execution that you can outsource to other parts of your business, then I think it's fine. Great. And um, are there any specific support mechanisms that you've seen exceptional organizations put in place to help support that that sort of ongoing thinking about both programmatic M&A and divestiture? First, it's just got to be core to what you do. So um, it depends on how you govern. But mm -hmm. typically, you know, this portfolio question should be an active part, clearly, of strategy setting. Sure. Uh, it needs to be linked to budgeting and whatever FP&A process you have, because as the business changes, your portfolio may need to change yeah. along with it. Yeah. Uh, so I'd clearly embed it into those kinds of processes. And, you, and the biggest problem is strategy becomes an aggregate of many small plans. Sure. And or budgeting becomes a bunch of micro decisions that largely focus on incremental reallocation of capital. As opposed to. Exactly. Yeah, as opposed to taking a look at the whole picture on a fairly regular basis and saying, is this who and, and where we want to be? So... It really depends on your starting point. I do think, you know, if you don't feel like you've got a clear view of the businesses you're in, a clear understanding of why you're in them, a clear link between your overall strategy and how that's going to drive transactions, either buy side or sell side transactions, you should do that work. And then you should also take a look and make sure that 
all of your decision making isn't being too incremental. We talk a lot about big moves as a firm, sure, right? Sure. Um, and it's the same concept, right? A lot of small moves typically add up to an indirect strategy or right. you know not being in the right place at the right time. And so I think it's just the same mindset. You know, am I thinking big enough? Am I thinking holistically enough about the portfolio? So Andy, you've, you've made it really clear that it's important to be able to get good at this in terms of thinking about portfolio mm -hmm. reallocation, resource reallocation. Mm -hmm. But for some companies, they may just be subscale in terms of having those capabilities to be able to do them on a regular basis. Yeah. Are there any tips that you can offer our audience in terms of how to establish that capability in a way that it is good for the long term? A few ideas. One is you do have to invest in your ability to transact and do these deals like you would any other function, right? If yeah, if you need to grow through M&A, if you need to grow the top line by 10% for M&A, well, if you were to grow the top line by 10% in your sales function, you wouldn't balk at hiring right. sales people. If right. you needed to innovate, you wouldn't balk at hiring a few more R&D people. Yet, people decide, companies often decide they want to allocate sometimes billions of dollars more capital, and you've got your four core one person. dev yeah. person. Yeah, you're one <laughs> right. person there, right. and the strategy guy, and they're going to go off and somehow make magic happen, right? right? And so you need to solve that problem. And you can solve that problem by building up your corporate development function. I think there's a minimum scale. You know, I don't think it needs to be hundreds of people, but you need to invest in it seriously. You need yep. to professionalize it. You need to have real tools. Yep. Um, and you, you need to have metrics. People need to be compensated with the right incentives. Like, you have to take it you know, as seriously as your aspiration. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a lot of ways to virtually do that, too. Um, I heard today, uh, I was talking to a client, and they called it the National Guard, right? I mean, you've got a National Guard strategy right. where you have people who are trained and capable, but you, you deployed when needed, right? Yep. So I do yep. think that that's also important to have, you know, whether it's a finance person or an IT person or an HR person who's actually got to go do the integration work or, do, or you know, participate in diligence or do the separation work. Practice matters. It yeah. really does yeah. matter. So having folks, the same folks, participate and make that part of their job description, their title, their expectations. So every time you have a deal, you're not negotiating about them with their time. You're not negotiating with their right. boss or you're not getting a different person every time, right. I think is also another way to do it. The other thing I would say is people really underestimate. This is going to sound a little self-serving, right? But people do underestimate how important it is to shift your capabilities and your insights when you shift your M&A strategy. Okay. So you're going for an adjacency, a business, maybe it's digital, maybe it's a new market. If you don't know anything about it, you've got to get that insight, sure. right? You've got to find a way to do it. And you know, and if you're going to invest a lot of money, you better make sure that those insights are good. I say it's self-serving because typically the answer is hire a consultant or come in a partner with somebody, right, right. to do it. Right. But I do think you know companies blindly often go into M&A strategies and they really suffer because they know they don't have the expertise, but they also don't take the step to go get it until they have a live target or a live deal. Sure. And you can imagine that when you think about the implications of that, it doesn't really make sense. You're never going to have the conviction to actually you know, go after the strategy if you don't trust the people's advice that are giving you the suggestions, right? right. So um, I think investing ahead of some of these. Mm -hmm. And the other, I say, would say the last thing that people typically struggle with, and you may have been going there with your, question, your next question, which is, okay, so you go into an adjacency. How do you actually get comfortable, whether it's a multiple evaluation? It just seems extraordinarily expensive, extraordinarily how risky. Yeah. How are you going to yeah. pay? How are you going to do that? Yeah. You know, and that is a really good question. Uh, and as specifically as you see digital, uh, in particular, strategies and ecosystems affecting all sorts of businesses, not just high-tech businesses anymore, I do have a lot of clients who struggle with that. 
And the one bit of advice I would give that's consistent with this whole theme, which is if you're going to invest in something, invest in it. Don't invest in a particular deal, right? M&A is a way to deliver strategy. It's not a strategy. Right. And so if your strategy is to get an adjacency or to build a new capability, what is the business plan for that? How much money are you going to spend? If you're going to spend $3 billion to do that over the course of five years, and you can do a deal yep. that's going to shorten the time frame or decrease the risk in a significant way, the it might be worth a multiple that you're not used sure. to paying, sure, right? Sure. And the key is just understanding that and knowing you're going to spend the money anyway, and then not only just spending it on a particular target, but making sure that that target then doesn't have to fund the strategy. Yes, you, know, you buy the company, yes, yes, yes. you start milking it for synergies, and you never get the growth out of it. Right. So how do you actually you know, put the organic investment around the asset and make sure you're truly committed to the strategy as opposed to confusing an individual deal, particularly one in a business you don't know, with the evaluation of that deal often becomes the evaluation of that strategy. And if you're not comfortable with the strategy, it's, it makes the deal very, very hard, sure. very difficult. Thank you for sharing the perspectives on what's driven this increase in divestitures. What's the right way to think about your M&A and divestiture strategy? A couple last questions. One is just in terms of putting in place um, things that help one think about portfolio reallocation. Have you seen any clients or companies do like red team, blue team, where mm. you know one half of the corp dev team is looking at acquisitions, the other half is, is looking at the existing portfolio and saying, this one really doesn't fit anymore, where it's their job yeah. to sort of look at that. One of my favorite questions with senior executives is, you know, after they come out of strategy reviews, did you ask everybody what their top three choices for a divestiture were? Something simple as that, right. right? Making everybody come in to say, in your business, it doesn't have to be a whole business. It could be a product line. It could be getting right. out of a particular market, right? right? But what are the three things you'd get out of to fund? And almost nobody asked that question. So I think that's a derivative uh, of, of yeah. what you were just saying. The red team, blue team, or red team, green team, I think for divestitures, actually, it's it's very, very helpful. A lot of companies do that for M&A. We, do we have conviction around it or not? I think most companies can get their head around the risks and the benefits yes. of buying something. There's also a sense of impermanence around an acquisition because once you buy it, you own it, and it can become something else. Yep. You, which with the divestiture, once you sell it, it's, it's gone. It's it gone. is permanent, yeah. right? And yeah. so that having somebody say, we really want to do this, and having somebody else say, we don't want to do this, and making a very strong case is typically quite helpful. You know, We talked about the CEO being the decision maker for the executive team right. to understand the breadth of the risk, the breadth of the problem. Last question is related to technology. What do you see as the modern-day conglomerate and why? Hmm. Um, I, you know, I think it comes down to some of the trends we talked about earlier. I don't think that conglomerates or groupings of businesses for regulatory reasons, capital reasons, or economies of scale, I'm sure there are examples, but it, it's they're becoming fewer and farther between. Right. I think economies of scope, I think the underlying core capabilities, having at scale IP, mm -hmm. R&D, analytics, digital assets, data, exactly. I think it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's because they have a lot of cash. I think <laughs> it's because there's actually something they can add to the markets that they're right. going into. Right. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out over time. Awesome. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time. My really pleasure. appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. 
Thanks again for joining us today. For a full transcript of today's episode and links to all of our past podcasts, please visit our page on mckinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance section. And if you'd like to receive updates featuring our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance practice page. Thanks again for joining us.